we we are very big fans of um, sort of what we call software differentiated hardware, and so we're not afraid of hardware. We've seen great growth in hardware companies in the industrial space. You know, people like to buy blinky boxes, so it, it's just the nature of the industry. So anyone that makes a box with blinky lights on it. Uh, it's fine, and we've seen good margins, but there's got to be a software differentiation, and that's where the value add comes from, right? It's in the knowledge, the gathering of data. I always joke that the value is in the data, and you've got to be collecting data and doing something with data. If it happens to be a box that you make that helps collect the data, uh, then that's fine. Welcome to The Syndicate, the podcast about the investors behind the overnight successes. It takes years. It takes money. On this show, we interview the top angel investors, venture capitalists, and startups to share what it really takes to succeed with startup investing. I'm your host, Matt Ward, and I'm a serial entrepreneur and angel investor. And I believe startups are the future, and angel investing is the best way to build real, true wealth. To find out more about us, please visit thesyndicate.vc. But now, let's get on with the show. Hey guys, welcome back to The Syndicate. Today, we've got an interesting rapid-fire interview planned. We've got Scott McDonald. Scott is in Barcelona now, but he's a Toronto-based VC focused on industrial IoT. Thanks for coming today, Scott. Yeah, pleasure to, uh, to join you today. So I'm terrible at intros and it wastes time. So tell me a little bit more about yourself. How in God's name if you spent 20 years in VC and you look like you're 30-something? Well, well, first of all, thanks so much. I think that's really kind of you. But uh, probably, you know, I'm, I'm making up for lost time. When I was 13 years old, I looked about six. So I just call it payback now. Uh, you know, it's a funny story, but I grew up kind of an athlete doing uh, what is a very unpopular sport in Canada, gymnastics. At least it's unpopular for men, very popular for women. And uh, I was on the national team and competed in a few world championships and ended up and didn't know what I wanted to do with my life when I retired from the national gymnastics team. I uh, had an offer to join the Cirque du Soleil, and that seemed pretty appetizing. And at the same time, I got into business school. And so I chose to, I always joke that I ran away from the circus and, and went and did my MBA and uh, found my way into venture capital. I'm that guy that uh, people always joke about and entrepreneurs always talk about that's never really built anything or done anything uh, that, that starts fresh out of school and venture. And uh, I call it an apprenticeship. I view venture as uh, being a player coach. And so sometimes it's handy to never have um, been the CEO of a business because you don't ever try to run someone else's company. You try to provide guidance and, and strategy at a different level. So that's how I got into it. Uh, and then I focus, as you mentioned, on the industrial side of the Internet of Things, which is really around industrial technology and taking censored environments which are increasingly being, you know, instrumented both in manufacturing in cities, in agriculture, all over the place. Almost every industrial sector is being changed by sensors and software uh, to try to run those industries more efficiently. The boring businesses are the ones where there's less competition and there's tons of money to be made. How'd you settle on IoT? Right. So we realized that there was this adoption of... um, there were a lot of pieces of sophisticated equipment in industrial settings that were censored. And if you could collect that stranded data and you could analyze it, you could create unfair competitive advantage in those industries. And those industries could be things like uh, the smart grid, where you're doing uh, grid automation. They could be things around cities where you're looking at traffic automation and, and just looking at real-time adaptive signal controls. Uh, it's looking at the, as I mentioned, in agriculture, looking at uh, crops, looking at growing patterns, and also looking at real-time soil data to decide how you uh, basically seed and then fertilize the two inputs you can, a farmer can do to change his you know, crop yields are seeding and fertilizing. And if you actually know down to the square foot how your soil is, is uh, handled or how it is kind of populated, then you can change those inputs and you can actually increase yields. And so 
Again, maybe boring industries to some, maybe really exciting to others. Uh, I think farmers think that their industry is exciting. And the idea of being able to use technology to increase the money they make is uh, hugely exciting. How do you handle that where it sounds like every one of those is incredibly diverse and different and you need a different skill set and ability to be able to evaluate founders, businesses, et cetera? Right. So at McGraw Capital, um, the firm that I co-founded and the venture fund we're investing out of, you know, the, the strategy is threefold on, on looking at opportunities. One is that we don't go too early uh, because it's industrial and the customer base across all those areas is, is slow to adopt. And the second one is that domain expertise, the point you just made, domain expertise is required because it's very difficult to have someone that's never been in a vertical market, whether it's manufacturing, whether it's the city environment or, or you know, uh, agriculture, and actually understand the customer needs. And so we always look for domain expertise in the vertical market that the company is going after. And the last thing is capital efficiency. And we really are excited about companies that don't need to take tons and tons of money to, uh, to grow their businesses. And so that comes into a little bit of the returns and how we make returns is that we're not you know, funding companies with $200 million looking for $2 billion exits. So what are you looking for? What type of, what type of return profile, profile makes sense for your fund size? Or do you need a 10x, a 50x, a 100x? Well, again, this goes back to the venture capital model, which is so different. Uh, you know, our model is that in industrial, if we can double or triple, so a two to three times return on an investment, uh, I always joke that I probably can make a career out of that. So, but you can't have a lot of mortality. And so, again, going a little bit later stage in a company's life, and by that, I mean they've been around for a couple of years, they have paying customers, and that's more we're looking, what we're looking for, the inflection point of growth, where we see that there's a buying universe, and it's not just two companies, where sometimes people buy for pilots, and it's really hard to tell on certain occasions whether it's a pilot or if this is full-scale deployment. And so we're looking for companies that are clearly in the deployment and the scale-up phase. And, and that's kind of you know, where we're trying to find that intersection. Of course, if you're too late, now it becomes very expensive to get into those investments because they've proven themselves. So we're really trying to find that, that delicate inflection point of, um, of what might be pilot revenue to scale deployment revenue. And the problem being that pilots, people will commit to any type of pilot because they don't have to go beyond that. But beyond the pilot, then they're committed and you know they're in. Correct. When you're talking about big companies like um, Caterpillar or you know, Electricity of France, which are two of our investors, when they have a program and they're looking at autonomous vehicles or they're looking at uh, electric vehicles, they have a budget to do research and development. And when a small company gets a, you know, a $75,000 purchase order, they think they've arrived. And the reality is that's a one-time budget for some investigation to a big company, which is almost like throwaway money. And you can't get the wrong signal from what that is. So then product market fit would be once you've got some recurring sales coming in? That's also another great piece. Yeah. You know, different models. If you're selling hardware, sometimes it's a, you know, you wake up every morning and start again, unless there's a software differentiated piece to it where you can get a recurring piece off of it. That's exciting. And so, yeah, you want to see companies that, you know, run around and sell hardware if they do, that has a software recurring piece. And then you can smell that growth rate uh, a little bit more than a, a company that has to kind of, you know, win the day every morning when they wake up. Will you invest in hardware only without the recurring? Uh, we won't do that. No, we, we are very big fans of um, sort of what we call software differentiated hardware. And so we're not afraid of hardware. We've seen great growth in hardware companies in the industrial space. You know, people like to buy blinky boxes. So it, it, it's just the nature of the industry. So anyone that makes a box with blinky lights on it uh, is fine. And we've seen good margins, but there's got to be a software differentiation. And that's where the value add comes from, right? It's in the knowledge, the gathering of data 
I always joke that the value is in the data and you've got to be collecting data and doing something with data. If it happens to be a box that you make that helps collect the data, uh, then that's fine. What are the best ways you found for IoT data-based companies to build in network effects? And by database company, are you kind of thinking at the AI machine learning level uh, or the sort of the, um, the data historian level where they're just kind of cleaning and scrubbing data? What portion are you thinking of when you say that? More, more so an IoT company that is highly focused on data. So not necessarily one that's AI, not necessarily one that's any of these things, but one that basically one that knows what they're doing. Yeah, I think a couple things around uh, IoT data, right? So by that, let's break the definition down. We're thinking about things of any nature, and of course, I'm focused on usually industrial machines uh, or sensors. So when you think about the collection of, of, of data, break it down in three ways. You've got the sensor or the device that has a sensor, and then you have the communication piece, which is how do you get that information somewhere. Then you have the analyze piece, which is the, which is the so what. And then you have the last piece, the third piece, which is actually that you're doing something differently or you're changing it. And so when you think about companies that are in this IoT stack of value from capture data, transmit data, and then analyze and do something, um, those are very different elements. And we don't find a lot of companies that play in that whole chain because, you know, the sensor is more of a hardware piece. The communication is something that we don't really get into, which is infrastructure, uh, LoRa, when uh, different, you know, technologies, it'd be Bluetooth different technologies for transmitting data in different situations, which is an infrastructure play that we don't do. But then we really get into the exciting area, which is the, the kind of analyze and the uh, command and control of the data. I always like to joke that I'm going to get a bumper sticker one day that says there's no ROI in telling people they suck. Over my career, I've realized that when you go into an environment, you instrument it, and then you come back and you say, here's the so what. Okay, maybe you're monitoring energy management and data center with a whole bunch of sensors. When you come back and tell the operator that their environment is highly inefficient, that's a hard ROI. The only ROI and the thing that comes with purchase orders when you show a technology that then says, this is how we're going to fix that situation for you. So I really like IoT companies that focus in on uh, a business outcome. And a business outcome is something tangible that happens that either makes them more money or saves them more money, full stop. What about platform plays? We have one platform play in our portfolio company called Nubo, which is a data analytics ingestion software that will, you know, without high touch, take in huge amounts of real-time data and then look for correlations in it. And it's being used in things uh, like boilers uh, to then do boiler insurance wrappers because, it, because the insurance company has a feeling it understands the likelihood of downtime because of it. And so, again, that technology could apply to boilers in that instance but it also could apply to smartwatches where it's taking data from you know, a consumer device. That's about as uh, sort of uh, horizontal as, as we'd like to get. The challenge we have in, in those types of companies, as you were mentioning earlier, the vertical market expertise is always the challenge because as you transition from one application to the next, there's always these gory details that need to be understood. The devices need to be understood. The user of the data needs to be understood. And when they're so different, in a horizontal technology like that, you have to pick really wisely what you tackle next. And, and you know, it's the uh, bowling pin strategy where you pick one bowling pin, knock it down first, and then go after the ones that are the bowling pins of the markets that are beside the, the original beachhead bowling pin. And I, I like that strategy. So we're not against kind of horizontal market IoT plays. It's just they better understand that they're going after a beachhead market first, have domain expertise to understand it, and then kind of logically branch out. Because when you do the, oh, we do an industrial boiler and we do a smartwatch, 
chances are you're going to get scattered and it's going to be really hard to execute and grow your business because you can't formulate a sales team around that. You can't formulate marketing material and a customer understanding of what your business actually is unless you're really going to stay in the background and ultimately sell to someone like Amazon or Azure. I just wanted to take a quick time out to tell you that the Syndicate Podcast comes to you from yours truly, Matt Ward, has no ads and is designed to help angel investors and tech startups succeed. We don't monetize. I do this 100% out of the goodness of my heart and the beautiful networking opportunities to get to chit-chat with some of the smartest, best angels and VCs around the globe and to help you guys. If you appreciate this, tell an angel or VC about us, refer us to a startup, or even leave a review. If you go to the syndicate.vc slash iTunes, I know it's clunky, it's terrible, but if you leave a review in there, it really helps us with reaching more angel investors and making the program as awesome as possible. If you want to learn a little bit more about us, get some more inside information, get access to our 20-step investor checklist, and get invites into all of our roundtables, including cryptocurrency, artificial intelligence, consumer tech with Tim O'Reilly, and more, go to the syndicate.vc. If you go there, subscribe, get on our email list, you'll get all of our best content delivered to you completely for free. Right to your email address. If you like this podcast and want more like it, the syndicate.vc. Now, let's get on with our podcast. Speaking of which, have you seen any strong pivots? So where it actually went well, typically you don't get two bowling balls. If they're close enough, if they're close enough, you can. You can, but uh, I, I, don't, I don't argue with you on that one. It really is hard. We, do, we see a lot of companies burn through tons of investor capital on the platform plays because they're almost opportunistic as they scramble to try to find revenue, which also, you know, it's kind of like chasing rabbits down holes. You're not really sure because you don't know what you don't know. So you get excited, you go to a new vertical, someone tells you there's a, a, a business outcome that they're trying to hunt, you go do a lot of research and then, you know, it's slower or you find out that your technology isn't really suited, but you spend a lot of, you know, time and effort. And your point is, are there really multiple bowling pins you can go after with a single technology or strategy, both from a human effort time frame that you have to actually attack those markets and the knowledge within your team. It's, it's a challenge for sure. Yeah, definitely. For the platform place to work, you typically need a, one product to be the beachhead, like you were saying, and expand from there. So I want to I jump into the Canadian side of things. So you were telling me earlier, took you guys three years to raise your fund. What's the scene look like in Canada and Toronto specifically? Why did it take so long? Anything you want to share? Sure. Why don't I, I give you a really fast snapshot of the venture scene in Canada. Going back a bunch of years ago, the government came up with uh, a strategy for, you know, kind of increasing the inflow of what they called risk capital. And they came up with a, a model called labor-sponsored venture funds. And it's a little bit like the SBIC program in the U.S. And so it stimulated money, but it had some really quirky, and, and it was basically done that, a, you know, an individual could invest in these vehicles uh, and they got a tax break. And so everyone put a couple thousand dollars every, you know, kind of tax time of the year into one of these funds because they got a matching uh, from, from the government on a tax break. And so it's what you just kind of did with your tax account. But you didn't really understand what this thing you were putting money into was. It had pacing requirements that said the manager of those funds, which took a fee, almost like a mutual fund, had to get the money that they collected every year out the door. So there was this mad money rush in the Canadian venturing industry where every December they had to use it up. And it, you can imagine what that does in a small venture ecosystem. We're very much in Canada behind the U.S. Uh, venture industry by capital deployment. That was before. Let me tell you where we are now. Uh, so what happened was it kind of really destroyed the Canadian market. The, the performance was terrible. And so it, it put a huge stall for a number of years on venture. Eventually, the government came back and decided it needed to help, help out. It canceled that program. And it started a new program called the Venture Capital Action Plan, which uh, seeded a bunch of fund-to-fund investors in Canada, four exactly, going back to about 2013 and 14 timeframe. 
And those four fund-to-fund players were now able to go out and find managers like McRock that had a specialization, his teams had a track record, and they could invest on behalf of the government and leveraged up private money on top of the government money in those fund-to-fund programs. And they started to rebuild the Canadian private venture capital ecosystem. We were part of that. And part of the reason it took three years to raise the fund was we, unfortunately or fortunately, whichever you want to think about it, launched right as that started to happen. And so it completely froze up the Canadian market as every corporate LP, every pension fund, every bank was being approached to participate alongside this government money and this fund to fund. So no one was really looking at direct investments at that time in the venture funds because they were trying to figure out what the government was doing and how this ecosystem was going to change. Fast forward to where we are now, you know, we had a number of funds that were created in Canada or, or had second or third closings. You know, our, our oldest funds in Canada are sort of at, you know, Roman, Roman numeral number three or four. So when you think about that to the U.S. where you've had, you know, funds like Sequoia and Kleiner and NEA and Excel and Battery goes on and on that have been around for some of them over 30 years, approaching 40 years, we're very different. You know, we have very few funds that are over a decade. Um, most are on Roman numeral number two or three and they're still proving themselves in the performance. So the Canadian government just came back to market and said, we're going to repeat the uh, venture capital plan. They're going to call it the Venture Capital, venture capital Catalyst Initiative. It's been nicknamed Vicky. And that is just coming to market. The RFPs went out. They're going to, again, support a number of fund-to-fund players. The, and those will be announced this summer. And an, a new amount of capital, so $400 million from the Canadian government, will again be matched by private sector and will come back out to market. So you're continuing to see the funding element of general partners in Canada, and that amounts trickling into the Canadian ecosystem. We had in 2017, one of our, one of our highest venture years uh, in history, uh, over $3 billion was deployed. But really interestingly, was that only 40% of that came from domestic venture capital, meaning the balance came from international with the US guys making up a huge amount of it. So uh, more than half is coming from American sources of capital into Canadian deals. Hopefully, that's because the Canadian market from the entrepreneur side is really transforming, and we're seeing a lot of interesting companies that are more you know, strategically like the type of deals that the U.S. venture guys like to see. Certainly, we've been tagged as a leader in artificial intelligence, both Montreal and Toronto. You know, we have quantum computing out on the West Coast, and so some really interesting areas uh, that are attracting up a lot of U.S. and international dollars into Canada. But isn't that fascinating that you'd see like only 40% of domestic uh, venture capitalists participating in that over $3 billion of capital deployment in 2017? Well, there's so much less in terms of endowments in Canada. One last question before we start to wrap things up. If you were an entrepreneur or an aspiring VC, would you head to Toronto or New York City if you had equal options? Oh, well, that's unfair because I'm a Canadian and uh, I'm living in Toronto. Let's say you're so, from New Mexico. From New Mexico, here, here's, here's what I'm going to say. I think the attraction to Toronto is pretty interesting because you've got a robust university and, and workforce population that's tech savvy. I would say the competition is probably less for the workforce and also prices that you would pay employees and for lifestyle reasons is, is, is less in Toronto over New York. So you're going to be able to build a company uh, more sort of cost-effectively in Canada. There's a lot of government subsidies and grant programs that I guess I couldn't comment how that would compete to, to New York, but certainly they're very strong. And so again, you have access to a lot of non-dilutive capital. And then third, you just, I just talked about the venture ecosystem and how it's building and that you know, U.S. venture capitalists are not shy about entering into Canadian markets 
you know, when things are going well, they tend to disappear when they aren't. But right now, it's a great time. So I think if I had to pick between the two, I'd pick Toronto right now for those reasons. Okay. Very, very interesting. As someone who's going through this now, that's, a, that's super helpful. So I, I want to wrap things up. I know you've got to run and go save the world. Scott, where's the best place for people to find you online? Sure. McGraw-Capital.com, or you can follow us at Twitter at McGraw-Capital. Industrial IoT, guys. B2B IoT. If you're not a founder that's in that space, please do not reach out looking for funding. It makes no sense whatsoever. Now, interestingly, if you are looking for funding in other spaces, the syndicate. Matt at thesyndicate.vc or just hop to thesyndicate.vc. You can find all the good information. Thanks for coming on today, Scott. Great. Thank you, Matt, for having me. Appreciate it. And have a great day. You too, guys. Cheers. Thanks for listening to The Syndicate, the podcast where angel investors and VCs go off the cuff and discuss the ins and outs of the venture ecosystem. We're here to share the tips and tricks of the best in the business because startups and tech make the pie bigger. To learn more about us and what we do, visit thesyndicate.vc. And to join our syndicate on AngelList, just go to thesyndicate.vc slash join and get access to some of the best startup deals. This has been another episode of The Syndicate. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you guys again next week.